Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This what I can foresee is that uh, our topic for tonight may not be as long as the other weeks, and so maybe I thought just to recap and mainly to allow you to maybe recap and if there's any questions. So the first week we talked about Eucharist as sacred meal, sacred meal, and I, I went into, you know, um, even talk about the history of how we receive, uh, who should receive and why, why not. Um, so that was kind of the first week, if you remember. Any questions or any comments that uh, anything not as clear as you would want it to be, or maybe something you reflected on afterwards that um, comes up? Okay. I do have a question. Yeah. That tonight when I was reading it, okay. it was talking about um, how Matthew went to meet with Judas. Jesus mm-hmm. called him. And then all his other friends yep. came there, and that basically they were world sinners, but they were yep. all, you know, sinners. Yep. And I am just wondering how that pertains, like, to nowadays, mm-hmm. like, like with that, even that synodal, mm-hmm. where they're thinking that, um, you know, same-sex couples should get blessed, mm-hmm. yeah. and people that are divorced should be able to get communion. Yep. Um, what what was it? What did it mean? Yeah, so good question. Um, so it's a big difference. For example, I have to say a big difference between Jesus eating with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, him going about his ministry. Those meals, big difference between that and what he did at the Last Supper, right? Because who was at the Last Supper? Do you mean? His twelve. Yeah, like the closest, right? Yeah. Okay. And Matthew was one of them. <laughs> but, you know, eventually he became not just a sinner, a prostitute, you know, one of the prostitutes and tax collectors, but he became one of his intimate friends. And then he was able to partake of that most intimate communion that Christ had offered. So we need to know that there's a, a distinction. So we should, all of us, should be willing to uh, be with other people, uh, try to evangelize, bring them to Christ. Um, but whatever we would do in those type of evangelistic missions is different than receiving Holy Communion in the Mass. Okay? And everyone can come to Mass, too. But Communion is something altogether different. It's much... It's, it's a communion between persons who are in a covenantal relationship with each other, us and God. Right? People who Jesus just eating with, Zacchaeus and the others, right? He's not in a covenantal relationship with them yet. And so he can do that. And, he, and he's never condoning of their behavior. <laughs> it's always meeting them where they're at and then calling them to something greater. He called Matthew out of that. He called Zacchaeus out of that life. Right? Into a, a more uh, virtuous and holy life. So that's the distinction there. Okay? And I think sometimes there can be a lot of what's happening in this this in this desire to reach out to others, bring others in, is at some point, there has to be a call to conversion. All right? Otherwise, it's just enabling. It's just seeing like, okay, yeah, we, we, we want you to be, friend, be friends with you, 
be including, but do we actually love you? Because love at some point wants the good of the other, wants the other to become, reach their potential, wants them to call them to holiness. So I think that's kind of the distinction, and that's what a lot of people, and one of my questions gets that, okay, when are we people, for example, like James Martin, Father James Martin, anyone who know Father James Martin is, he's very public for, you know, being very pro-inclusivity uh, and stuff like that. But he never actually calls people to repentance or say, hey, this is actually how you have to live eventually. And so that's always lacking. And that's, you know, there's, there's a, there could be a fine line there, but at some point you have to call people into a higher better way. Yeah. A good question. Last week we, we talked about Eucharist as a sacrifice and the fact that, and we'll get into today, that Jesus is fully present in the Eucharist. In the, the Eucharist contains Jesus and the power of his passion <laughs> as well. And the reason that we can have communion, we can have Eucharist as a sacrament, is that we first have it as a sacrifice. I mentioned, like, I think that's one of the greatest losses of the last number of decades is that we've forgotten that the Mass is a sacrifice. Right? We... we there's been an overemphasis on mass as a meal, you know, communal fellowship, all right? And when you have communal fellowship, um, if you don't come, you're missing out, you know, on the you're you're missing out on a meal. You're missing out on community, right? It's not as big to say like if it's a sacrifice and I don't come, I'm not giving to God what is his due. I, I am not fulfilling the virtue of justice or religion by not coming to Mass. If we truly understand the Mass as a sacrifice that we owe to God, I think it's harder to stay away because out of justice I need to be there. I owe it to God. <laughs> I am not truly being a person, uh, a creature giving my, and, a, and in this sense a Catholic, a Christian, giving to God what is his due if I don't come. Whereas if you forget about the Mass as a sacrifice and you only think about it as a meal, a communal meal, then, okay, yeah, if I don't come, I'm missing out on the community. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're lacking because I'm not there. I'm part of the body of Christ, but I'm not there. But there's less of, a, of, a, of an importance. There's less of a, um, you know, uh, something important for me not being there. Does that make sense, I think? And so I think it's been easy for people to not come to that. Oh, I don't really get anything out of Mass. Or, whereas if we truly believe, no, it's about offering a sacrifice. Like, i got to be there. <laughs> if I don't get anything out of it, that's not that's beside the point. It's about me offering myself to God, giving God what is his due. It's an act of justice. I'm being unjust if I don't fulfill the virtue of religion to this. Yeah, David? Yeah. When is he fully present? Like, I mean, when you... you yeah. Do the host is you half there and then you do the wine and the other half. Good, good. So why don't we? Um, I can answer it quickly, but I think we'll touch in it the, okay. about tonight. But basically, in the once I say the words, "This is my body," the bread becomes Jesus. Okay. The wine isn't yet His presence. Then I take the chalice and I say, "This is my blood property." When I say that, then the chalice becomes the body, blood, soul, divinity. So it's after each of the separate consecrations. So, good question. So, if you got your books, I'll go a little with this uh, chapter more according to this, and then we'll 
take some pauses to go a little deeper into what Bishop Barron is saying. Um, in fact, Bishop, speaking of Bishop Barron, uh, Didi, that he wrote an article, this came out a couple week, days ago, about his experience at the Synod. Anyone see that? So I think it's pretty good. And, you know, he had some of, the, some of the questions you just said there. Um, one of the things is, in the document that came out, it said basically that Christian morality needs to take and consider the social and, uh, you know, the current kind of studies and stuff like that. And he's like, no. <laughs> uh, morality is based off human nature. Human nature doesn't change. And that needs to stay consistent. So, uh, kind of, and he's been really, uh, Bishop Barron has really pointed out the whole idea of what it means to be inclusive as well and exclusive. And so, he's, so, um, you might want to find that. Would that be on YouTube, you think? Uh, it was something he wrote. So it might be on Word on Fire. You just Google Bishop Barron on synodality, synod on synodality. So pretty provocative title for this chat, right? <laughs> if, it's, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. But uh, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, so Flannery O'Connor a great Catholic short story writer. Uh, her, one of her famous ones is, uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And I, I like to quote, I don't know if it's in that one, but she wrote some short story, I've said this before, about this girl, and uh, speaking about this young girl, it was saying about her, yeah, she, you know, she, she just knew she didn't really have it in her to be a saint, but she believed she could be a martyr if they killed her quick enough. <laughs> right? That's kind of the same thing. Right? Like, yeah, they just say this stuff. But if they just came up to me quickly and just shot me, then I think I could do that. Right? Instead of day in and day out. You know. uh, so that's in one of her other, I think, uh, short stories. As evening drew on, the talk turned to the Eucharist. And Mary McCarthy, who had been raised Catholic but had fallen away from the church, remarked that she thought of the Eucharist as a symbol and implied that it was a pretty good one. She undoubtedly intended this condescending observation as a friendly overture to the Catholic O'Connor. But O'Connor responded in a shaky voice, Well, if, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. Only, one can only imagine the, that that elegant dinner party broke up rather soon after that conversational bomb was dropped. In its bluntness, clarity, and directness, Flannery O'Connor's remark is one of the best statements of the Catholic difference in regard to to the Eucharist. For Catholics, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus, and any attempt to say otherwise, no matter how cleverly formulated or deftly articulated, is insufficient. Because we have to think about this. Either that is God present, Jesus, or we're idolaters. You know, we're committing sacrilege. We're, we're committing sins against the, the first commandment. <laughs> we're worshiping a piece of bread. Like, there's a big difference. Sometimes we... we, we you know, with the differences, we, we like to poo-poo these. Like, no. Um, it's either God, and we're worshiping as he wants to be, or we're committing idolatry. And we're going to see through this night that I think there's very good reason to believe what we're doing is very holy and good and what God wants of us. So we call it the real presence because Jesus truly is really and substantially present. Um, and I love how he, he connects, uses this last chapter to connect the two other chapters uh, towards the bottom of page 70. If Christ's presence in the Eucharist is only symbolic, then the sacrifice is mitigated. 
And if the sacrifice is mitigated, then communion is compromised, right? The point of the sacrifice is it brings us back into reconciliation with God. It brings us back into communion with Him. We're separate original sin, and then we've had all these different sacrifices, um, even in a natural way, right? All sorts of peoples have tried to communicate to get in communion with God, and they did some horrible things, right? Child sacrifice. God reveals himself slowly to the Israelites. He gives them all these other type of sacrifices, all meant to try to bring Israel back in communion with God. But obviously those, those don't do it. They're not enough. It takes the sacrifice of the God-man of Jesus to bring us into communion fully with God. And it's the Mass, okay, the Eucharist as such, okay, which allows us in a very real and have it, that, that sacrifice, that communion and reconciliation applied to us in our relationship with God. And so the Eucharist has to be first real so that you can have the real sacrifice so that you can have the real communion with God. And so it fits very well together. Um, chapter uh, 6 of John's Gospel. The scandal of John 6. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard different converts talk about John 6. And inevitably, they'll talk about how they just totally ignored John 6, <laughs> you know, in their growing up. Uh, Scott Hahn talks about it, how, uh, like, going through John 6, they're, they're just like, yeah, it, it spoke about the, the Eucharist. <laughs> they just avoided it because it was, like, so obvious that he's speaking about the real presence, Jesus in his own words. And so maybe just to go through John 6 to remind you what happens in it. Uh, first, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. And then Jesus sends his, uh, his disciples down into the sea, get in the boat. Um, Jesus goes off by himself um, to pray. Okay. Um, next day, the people saw... Sorry, no. Then evening came, the disciples went in the boat, and so Jesus came walking on the sea. Um, when they saw Jesus, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat. They were frightened. They said, do not be afraid. Uh, they took him into the boat, and the boat was at hand. The boat was at land across, okay? So these people then realized, where did Jesus go? And then, so they went around into the other side of the sea, and they found Jesus and the disciples. Why do you think they're looking for Jesus at that point? Yeah, so Jesus says this. He says this right on page 71, Bishop Barron talks about, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. These people say, hey, Let's just follow this guy around. <laughs> just keep feeding us. This is our sugar daddy, right? Like That's what we got to do. We'll just stick around him. And we need food. We need to eat. <laughs> this is going to be great. Right? And what does Jesus say? Verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which a son of man will give you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. Okay. So Jesus is so good. Kind of like we were just speaking earlier. You meet people where they're at, and you bring them deeper. And so he takes them where they're at, saying, okay, you know, that's fine. You have these natural needs. <laughs> you want your full belly? That's good. But there's something more than just having natural food and bread. And so 
this is where he, he brings them deeper. Bishop Barron uh, talks about how uh, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we say daily bread, but in the Greek, it's... Um, I can't think of it right now, but um, the, the upi, upioson um, bread, which he shows means super substantial bread. Designating not so much the bread of ordinary human consumption, but the bread of suitable for a higher pitch of existence. So, and it's even the thing about it's actually give us this day our daily bread. So it's kind of like this double negative or this double. We're saying daily twice. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, but in the Greek, it's super substantial bread. And the Greek and the church fathers and the early church has always read that as the Eucharist. Okay, this super substantial bread. What could that be? Oh, it's the Eucharist. And then Jesus continues. Um, he speaks about having to actually eat his bread, actually eat his flesh, and drink his blood. And what, what happens to the disciples or the Jews first when he says that? Do they say, yeah, that's great. Well, uh, sign me up. Give me, your, give me your leg bone, Jesus, and let me start gnawing on you. No. The Jews murmured at him. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Right? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. All right. And then Jesus goes, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6, chapter, or verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Bishop Barron points in here uh, on page 73. Like, this isn't just, like, strange. This is totally, like, disgusting and gross for a Jew to think about. To eat the flesh with the lifeblood in it? Like, they were commanded not to do that. And then Jesus is saying, eat my flesh? Like, so this is very difficult for them. So much so, all right, that a number of them um, left him. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. So you have kind of like these different groups of people. You have the, the wider kind of those who are watching Jesus from a distance, the Jews, okay? They can't, this is like, they're, it's easier for them to walk away because they haven't had as much invested in Jesus. They haven't been really following him that close. They walk away. Um, then you have his disciples that actually says, Jesus, John says that many of his disciples, so people have been walking with him close, actually called his disciples, actually stopped following him because of this. Like, that's remarkable, Okay. And in this time, Jesus, the Son of God, okay, he knows everything. He knows these people understand what he is saying. <laughs> and he understands why they're willing to leave is because they don't accept it. Now, if Jesus was speaking figuratively, symbolically, if he was like you or me, he'd be like, oh, guys, I'm just, I didn't mean it. 
Like, for real, I meant it symbolically, come on back. <laughs> but no, he's willing to let them leave rather than compromise or water down his teaching. He's so insistent on this that he lets them leave. So there's a number of different things in this chapter that we can say point to the real presence of Jesus. And that is, that's the first one, maybe, is that Jesus is willing to let people leave. Maybe, in a sense, risk their salvation because they're leaving Jesus because he's not willing to change or water down what he was teaching. That he's saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're understanding him as saying that. And that's why they're leaving. And Jesus is understanding that they are understanding. Or Jesus knows that they understand him as speaking literally. And he's okay with that. And he knows that's why they're leaving. And he's okay with that. Because he, this teaching is so important. Right. We get to um, maybe just a quick... So I printed out this. This is what John even says. So John writing in... So what I did is, this, this is just John 6, but in a couple places I put the Greek word in. So you can see John, when you, you, you don't get this if you just get the English translation. So this is starting from verse 47. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me, has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate fago, the manna in the desert, but they died. So Bishop Barron points a little bit about this. Um, at the bottom of 74, where he changes, John changes from fago to trogo, or fagion in a different uh, tense, and trogion. All right? So fago means like eating in a general sense. It can be used metaphorically. The example I like to say is like um, some teeny comedian was telling jokes and the people were just eating it up, right? Okay, there's, there's, that's figuratively, metaphorically eating. Okay, But when you use trogo, you can't use it in a figurative sense. It has a very visceral, chewing, gnawing, munching uh, connotation to it, like animals would do. And so we see Jesus, if we look at the handout from or John writing about what Jesus is saying, uses fago all the time until verse 54. And so 54, it's kind of like Jesus is doubling down, tripling down, if you will, saying, whoever eats trogo, my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats trogo. So it's a whole different verb. <laughs> no more could you even question metaphorically or figuratively Jesus speaking about eating all right, or consuming. There's many times that Jesus does speak. I am the vine, you are the branches. I am, you know, the good shepherd. Okay. You speak, you know, unless you are born again. <laughs> all right. Nicodemus comes to him. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus takes him literally, right? He says, well, how can, how can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, no, no. You must be born of water and the spirit. <laughs> so Jesus, when he speaks figuratively, he does. He clarifies that. 
Here he's not speaking figuratively, otherwise he would have clarified it. But he doubles down and doubles down in the literal message of what he's saying about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so the second kind of main thing is we see in John using a different a different uh, Greek word, Greek verb for to eat. Following so far? Makes sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> then just about a, a third of the way down on page 75, this is what I love, uh, this verse. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever eats me will live because of me. The church in Hibbing, the Catholic Church, is called Blessed Sacrament. I was there for two years. And it has in Latin that verse around the church. Beautiful. And I, I, I love things that are logical. And so Jesus is so logical here, right? He says, okay, I have life because of the Father, because I'm connected to the Father. You're going to have life because you need to be connected to me. Just as I... I'm remaining in the Father and I have life. You will have life if you remain in me. So logical. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever eats me will live because of me. If we want to have life from the Father, we have to be connected to Jesus the Son. That's what Jesus is saying. Pretty logical to me uh, in that sense. Uh, Towards the bottom of 75, we must eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Lord because that is the way that we come to participate in him, and thus, finally, in the life of the Father. Grace, God's divine life, can be communicated, all right, however God wills it, um, in abstract ways, in a sense. But the ordinary means God gave us is a very human way, a tangible way, the sacraments. Like that's how God wants to relate with us in a really human way with the sacraments. And so the Eucharist is the greatest kind of example of that. That God just doesn't want to say, okay, you guys just sit there and think about me. (laughs) No, I want to come into you. I want to have communion with you by you actually digesting, (laughs) taking uh, me into you by eating, by consuming me. That's that's how God set it up. That's how God wants to have it with us. And again, it's so human <laughs> because just think of like yeah, any husband and wife. They just, are they just going to sit across from each other and just stare at each other? Like no, they're going to have real communion at some point. That's that's what it means to be human is to relate in that way. And so God relates to us in a very human way, not just abstractly, but through physical, tangible, material means. The set. At the sacraments. <clears throat> Page 76, again reiterating, uh, it was a hard teaching. Um, and again, the very resistance of his disciples to the bread of life discourse implies that they understood Jesus only too well and grasped that he was making a qualitative different kind of assertion. Many of his disciples turned back, no longer went with him. And then listen to this. This is so important for us when we struggle maybe to believe. He asked the inner circle, the 12, bluntly enough. So you can just imagine the scene. First, a lot of people leave, goes to kind of the outskirts, kind of following Jesus 
you know, from the outside, you could maybe call it like the, the um, kind of the, 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 the fan girls or something, just kind of on the way outside, you know. They ask too, far, too much to accept, so they leave. And then his disciples, are like, yeah, this is, this is too much for us. I know we've been with you for three years, Jesus, but uh, we're out of here. And so it's Jesus and the twelve. That's it. Like, you see, like, like hmm. it's kind of quiet around here. <laughs> and so Jesus turns after everyone leaves, goes that way. He turns to the twelve and he says, "Do you also want to leave? Do you also want to leave?" And Simon Peter answering, being the first among equals, our first pope, the leader. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, does Peter say, oh yeah, I got this. Lord, you mean transubstantiation. That's what you mean. You're going to give us bread, but it's really going to be you. And you're going to have us drink wine, but it's really going to be your blood. I totally get this. No, that hasn't happened yet. All right? There's no, no connection right now that they would think Jesus is going to turn bread into his body in that way. But, but, Jesus, but Peter trusts Jesus on his authority. You have the words of eternal life. Lord, <laughs> all right. Lord, this is, sounds crazy. I know. Uh, it's hard for me to get it. Everyone walked away. But it's either you or there's no other option. So... I'm going to trust you, Lord. We're going to trust you, son. We're going to trust that somehow we're going to figure this out, what you actually mean down the, the line. And so they'll get to the Last Supper eventually. And like, oh, this is what Jesus was saying back in the Bread of Life. This was what he's going to... Ah, makes sense. Good thing we hung out there. That's good thing we hung in there. Okay. Peter doesn't say, oh, yes, Jesus. Yeah, give, give me your bicep muscle. I want to go to heaven. And so, so. No. They didn't understand how it was going to happen, but they understood what Jesus was saying and they had to trust him because he has the words of trust. That's the way it is with us still. That's the way it is with us still. We believe faith is on authority. Right? To have faith, it means that you accept the teachings on authority. Not that we understand it all because we can't. It's a lot of it's, it's mysteries. All right? Um, but it's off the authority of Christ and his church that can neither deceive nor be deceived. The church has God's very own divine authority to teach us. And so we know that what the church teaches definitively, we can trust because of the authority. Just like this. <laughs> it wasn't understanding how it was going to work, but it was the authority of Jesus saying, okay, Jesus, we believe you because you're not going to deceive us. So that's what's happening uh, Bread of Life discourse here. Um, also, this is a, it's, if you wonder kind of where, where Judas started to waver, we got, you know, weak in the shaky in the knees right here. Where Jesus knew from the first of those, sorry. Yeah, Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Okay. And so, he already knows who doesn't believe. And then later on, 
Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon of Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. So not totally direct, but you can kind of see that possibly it was Judas's lack of belief and willing to believe in the real presence that began to, to weaken his relationship and trust in Jesus. So anything on that in chapter 6, John's Gospel? I think it's just so clear about the real presence. <laughs> and I think if you have, you get a Protestant to actually look at this and talk about it, <laughs> be honest, it's hard for them to say, like, uh, no, it's just a symbol. <laughs> no. Again, like with the Passover lamb, for the Passover lamb to save you, you could just have a, a, a symbol of the lamb. You had to actually eat the lamb. Unless you eat the flesh of the, of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. Jesus is so clear about that. On that topic of, uh, yeah. on that, on that topic of the people uh, left him, you, know, you know, they couldn't handle it, right? Yeah. And then the, the apostles stayed. Um, you, you, of course, you remember when Jesus chose the apostles, right? He walked by the seashore and he said, you and you and James and Andrew and John and... and, and and it seems like I've heard, you know, that the Holy Spirit entered those people, and they, because they wouldn't just leave their dad and their nets for this guy that they just. Uh, but uh, yeah, if, if the Holy Spirit came into me, and all of a sudden I, I knew that this was God, then of course I would, you know. Uh, but maybe all those other people didn't didn't have that wonderful experience of being, you know, told uh, or confirmed or whatever. I mean, there's something that drew them, but I don't. I don't think it necessarily has to be something supernatural. I think God works in very ordinary ways. I think I don't. I don't know if we could say that they knew that this was God at that point. That Jesus was God. I. I think it. It, it took faith still on their part to believe and to follow. Granted, they have a grace, but and there was something maybe that. Um, there was something even just in that time about rabbis being it being a very uh, prestigious thing to be called by a rabbi to follow them. You know, it's a pretty select group. Um, but yeah, I would say there's grace and stuff, but I don't, I don't think there was like, oh, I would doubt, I would I would go as far as saying, oh, that's God, we're going to follow him. So, no. Yeah, so that really. leads up to another question. Like, Mary was full of grace. I mean, the ultimate amount of grace, right? Yep. Within her. Correct. So, like, what you're saying is, like, does God grace some people? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, so that kind of goes with what he's saying, right? I mean, so, like, his apostles, he might have given them a little grace. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And left Judas out? Well, I think... He I gave him grace, but he rejected the grace. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. But I, it feels like in life there's always an opposite. <laughs> it, I mean, doesn't it seem that way? Like her teaching and in God's way of teaching, I mean, without the dark, we can't mm-hmm. understand the light. Yeah. And so, like, even reflecting on Judas, like, yes, he did wrong, obviously. Mm-hmm. But again, like what you're saying, it doesn't really make sense when it comes to the grace part then. I mean, I know he denied him, but then he calls him devil. I mean, but obviously he's not the devil, but 
also at the Last Supper it said that devil entered him. The devil entered mm -hmm. him. So yeah. God allowed that to yeah. happen. I mean, he could have said, Satan, stay away. But he allowed it. And I, I just, I don't know. I just think God has his ways and plans. Yeah, and, and a lot of it we, we <laughs> won't understand until we get to the other side. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? See, I don't think I, I don't think it's, we should look at it that way. I should I should I would look at it just that's what happened, and God is so powerful. He brought the greatest amount of good out of it. You know, I get what you're saying, and it's it's it can look at it that way. But I would I would look at it more like, no, that's what happened, and God is so powerful. I, I don't I, yeah because we have to we would say, um, Judas had free will. Okay, so he wasn't determined to do that. And to say, like, that was God's plan means to bring too much determination to that happening. Or can you use the word predestined? I mean, I, I hear that. Uh, you know, yeah, well. but not, not in that way. I don't think we could use predestined in that way. Because here's, you know, a question, too, to get even more sidetracked, is would Jesus have come if Adam and Eve didn't sin? You don't think so? No. No one knows the answer. It's a hypothetical. But I mean, the the exalted, the exalted, says what about original sin? Oh, happy fault. Yeah. So the liturgy seems to say that, in a sense, Jesus only came because of that. But would we have had as full of revelation of who God is without Jesus? I think so. I well, not not yeah. I, I think that. I think that one of the great gifts of of Christ, and this this is what we believe, is that He reveals perfectly who God is, and and who the Father is. And there is this idea. Okay, what Adam and Eve experienced in paradise. Original sin dropped us down here, but with Christ, with grace, the happiness be added to that's possible is much greater than than that. But I don't know if we could say, oh, that um, God would have just not had His Son, the Incarnation, if Adam and Eve didn't sin, because it seems like we would be missing so much. Maybe God could have revealed it in a different way. David? I had heard someone said if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, somebody else would have. <laughs> Eventually, you know, and yeah. Jesus would have came. Maybe, yeah. No. So, all hypotheticals. <laughs> but, it's, but if you think about hypotheticals, it does help you actually understand like what you actually believe. Right? Okay. Then, why did I know Satan had a free will? But it kind of goes along with Jesus. <laughs> like, why... Like, God is God, right? Yep. He could have said, Satan, you're not allowed on earth. 
Like, that's the part, do you see how, like, some of it is not like, it's not like, what's the word? Yeah, but a lot. But do you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, a lot of these are why questions that we don't know unless no, it's been revealed. No, but do you my, my thought process though? Like, yeah. like, is it a way of teaching us? Well, I think that's it. That's that's well. Again, we don't we don't know absolute whys, but we can say I think that's one of the reasons. We can speculate one of the reasons. Yeah, why God wanted allowed that to happen is so that He could truly mm-hmm. test us and allow us to truly love. And to choose him. And to reveal who he is yeah. too. Yeah. Like so like so within even the whole story, it's always Jesus revealing who he is to us. Mm-hmm. And ult- ultimately the gift of holy communion mm-hmm. is his ultimate revealing of who he is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking this through. <laughs> So, after, after John 6, uh, Bishop Barron talks about the early church and the church fathers. And again, it's important to realize that there was no dispute over the real presence for centuries and centuries. Okay, we see in all these quotations from the church fathers um, saying that, believing that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus. Um, what do I want to say? Even Augustine, his quote, Augustine's quote wasn't in here, but Augustine will say, um, one doesn't sin by first adoring before consuming, but actually does sin if one doesn't adore before consuming. This idea of recognizing truly that the Eucharist is God's true presence and God and therefore can (coughs) to adore him in that way. Uh, These days, now we have... Uh, over you know after centuries reflecting and realizing okay that is Jesus and okay it makes sense that not just to have him at mass but actually to prolong that moment at the mass where Jesus is held up and so that's why we have Eucharist at adoration but there's a time when they wouldn't do that and it's reported that in those centuries people would shout to the priest like keep holding, keep holding him up. Like, don't, don't bring your hands down if you want more time to, to adore him in, in that part of the Mass. Uh, like, you know, now we don't have to do that. We have adoration, which is great. And so another incentive to, you know, sign up and to make use of our great um, chapel. Um, over time, the church, on page 83, Bishop Barron says, but this, I think, is a mistake for the intellectual move from the what and the why to the how is a natural one. And thus, even if we wanted to undo it, we couldn't. And in point of fact, the exploration of the more technical dimension of the Eucharist, when undertaken in the right spirit, preserves rather than undermines the mystery of the sacraments. Okay, so so now we're going to get into um, a little bit more philosophy here and how it is that we can say what looks like bread really is the body, what looks like wine truly is... Uh, the blood of Christ. Um, and St. Thomas takes the great and very logical and real and commonsensical 
and what makes sense philosophy of Aristotle. And he takes a lot of basic theology and revelation and is able to marry it, if you will, with what Aristotle did with um, with his philosophy. And so this is where we get into Aristotle. Uh, when he talks about, when we talk about metaphysics, the whatness, what things is or being, we can speak of something having substance and then accidents. But we need to understand what substance means in a philosophical sense. Because what would you say the substance of this is if I asked you? You'd say wood. That's the material cause in Aristotle. So that's the material. That's what Aristotle would say. He would say the substance of this is amboist. Amboism. Okay, what it means to be an amble. <laughs> Or a podiumism, okay? That's what the whatness is. That's the substance, okay? Um, the whatness of it. Accidents is, okay, part of the accident is that it's made out of wood, that it's uh, maybe a little over three feet high, okay? It's hard. Okay, those would be the accident, or it's brown, because you can have a black podium, right? So accidents just means things that can change in it, and it still remains what it is. Um, so, St. Thomas takes, actually it was before him, it was... Uh, The franc, okay, but Saint Thomas makes it makes it uh, famous, and so what he says is, when we have, for example, the host before consecration, what is the substance of that? Bread. Bread. Good. Okay. It's different. What are the accidents of it? It's round. white, round, round, white. You know, I think our ours ours are a, a one inch and three eighths, one eighth one and three eighths inch diameter. You know, round. Okay, that's the accidents. So what the church finally says in Council of Florence. And what St. Thomas uh, expands on, or sorry, the Fourth Lateran Council, is that what happens is the breadness, the whatness, actually changes into Christ while the accidents remain the same. That's called transubstantiation. Trans meaning across the substance. 
So the accidents remain while the substance changes. The whatness of it. So, still tastes like bread. Still tastes like wine. If you drank too much of, from the chalice, you would be inebriated. Okay? It still has the qualities of wine, even though it's no longer wine. Still has the accidents of that. Almost everything in our life, we would say, in here we say, you know, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck, is a duck. Not the Blessed Sacrament. It's really the only thing that way. Um, and the only reason we don't believe that it's bread after consecration is because Jesus told us. <laughs> Alright, that's the only thing. That's that's all you can go on. Alright? That's why I think we talked about this I think the other week with Eucharistic miracles. They just don't do it for me as much because it's it's to me it seems like something separate. They're connected. It's God saying like, hey, believe that this is true, but the reality is something different. <laughs> it's bread the substance of bread or the substance of wine actually changing into becoming the, the presence of Christ. All right? But this type of presence is different. So looking at uh, page 93. Middle. Thomas makes a decisive distinction between Christ's bodily presence according to his proper species and at the same bodily presence according to the species appropriate to the sacrament, a sacramental species. Proper species is a technical jargon for the ordinary appearing of something. Thus, in his proper species, Christ is embodied person of a particular height, weight, color, existing in heaven. Though we're not quite sure what this existence is like in a transcendent dimensional system. But this same embodied Christ can also become present according to a species or appearance that is alien to him, that is to say, according to a sacramental mode. In light of this distinction, Aquinas clarifies that the body of Christ is not in the sacrament of the Eucharist the way the body is ordinarily in a place, measured by its own dimensions and circumscribed by the contours of space that it occupies. So we have to think about the mode, the way that Christ is present is different from what he is, just as he is in heaven, He's also here, but in a different mode, a different way of existing. So much so, I think this is a good example, is that if you take a host, consecrated host, and you break it in half, you don't have half of Jesus and half of Jesus. You have all of Jesus and all of Jesus. Okay? You can't break up that sacramental mode. Whereas, like, Jesus... Or me right now, you can break me in half. <laughs> but you can't break the real presence of Jesus in half. It's all of Jesus. The smallest particle is all of Jesus. Okay? That's why it's not uh, it's not preferred, but what you can do is if you're running out of hosts, is you can break hosts and give them to different people. It's not preferred because you get you know you break particles and more um, possibility of profanation and um, 
losing uh, those particles. So the sacramental mode is how Jesus is present here in the Blessed Sacrament. Okay. And so, on page 94, in Aquinas' more precise language, when one consumes the Eucharist, one crunches, munches the accidents of bread with the teeth, not the body of Christ, since Christ is being received substantially, but according to a sacramental species, not his proper species. Make sense? Okay. And so what I'd like to think about that, it helps me to think about this, is like Christ's presence, I don't want to say like his soul, I don't want to think about that, I would kind of think that way of his his kind of spiritual presence, if you will, but his body, soul, divinity presence is entering into me, all right, at that point. So I'm, I'm chewing on what looks like bread, the accents, or, or consuming what looks like wine, okay, but it's really his whole presence is coming into me. And so if you have one host and you have another host, it's not like you're adding on two presences of Christ into you. You just have Christ's presence. Or if, or if you sip, uh, for example, a priest, the, take the host, and then the chalice, it's not like I'm getting two Jesuses in me. I'm just, I have Jesus in me, okay? Because um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, um, Jesus isn't there by extension. There's no quality or quantity in him, no extension. He doesn't take any space. It's just his sacramental presence. It's just as real but a different mode. <coughs> At the bottom of uh, 94, nevertheless, this particular sign is <coughs> capacity contained perfectly, though hiddenly, that toward which it points. Whereas the other sacraments contain only the power of Christ, baptism, marriage, uh, confirmation, etc. The Eucharist uniquely contains Christ himself, in the full reality of his presence. And thus it is the chief of the sacramental signs. So it is a symbol, but it's a symbol that can, can not merely a symbol. It contains what it symbolizes. All right? That's important to realize. So I understand when you start talking about that, you're saying, oh, it's just a symbol. No, it's not just a symbol. It is a symbol, but it's much more. All right? So that's sometimes it's not even worth getting into that because people may not understand but it is a symbol, it's a sign that signifies, that actually possesses what it signifies. It points to Christ's presence and it contains Christ's presence there. Um, page 97. Getting close to the end here. Middle. St. Thomas Aquinas is arguing that at the Eucharist, the appearances of bread and wine do not tell the deepest truth about what is really present, and that, in point of fact, the authoritative word of Christ does. Again, it's what Christ tells us, it's what the Church tells us, okay? Um, that this is truly Christ um, present. Uh, he goes into some of the effects of the Eucharist. Principal consequence of the Eucharist is grace, a share of the divine life. Um, it also remits venial sin, right? We can't go if we have mortal sin, sacrilege, but venial sin is forgiven. It's, it's, 
it's wiped away through um, sacramental communion. And then I love what he says at that page, bottom of page 99. So the Eucharist, in its sumptuous liturgical setting, surrounded by music, art, the word of God, and the prayer of the community, does more than sustain the divine life in us. It delights us. It's the foretaste of a heavenly banquet. Right? We, you can have the Eucharist, you can have Mass in very simple circumstances. But it's fitting to have it in the most elegant and elaborate times as well. You know, music, and beauty, sacred spaces... Um, all of those things. Last thing I just want to say, I, there's a priest that put a video on, and he took it off, but it was so good. Um, it was on YouTube, it was, and he was kind of saying, like, if people come to Mass, and they're like, mm-hmm, what's going on, they don't really care, uh, and I don't receive, you know, I don't get anything really from Holy Communion. It doesn't mean anything to me. What he's saying is it's not the problem with the Mass itself, that experience. It's that the person has no relationship with Christ. Right? If you have a relationship with Christ, if you're praying every day, you're going to adoration, you're going to daily Mass, you're striving to follow Him, you're, 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 you're living in the presence of God, you, you, you're, you have that relationship then you look forward to that time when you can actually have the most intimate communion with him, right? So this priest was saying, the problem isn't with the Mass, it's the problem is you have no relationship with Christ. If you have a relationship with Christ, then you're going to appreciate this moment. If, you, if you're sacrificing hard through your week for your, for your wife or your husband or your kids, and you're doing that out of love for God, out of Jesus, your love for Christ, and you're, you're sacrificing, you're suffering in this way, and you're staying up late to help your kids, or waking up early, or you're just you're tired out, or you're, you're, you're carrying the burden of your responsibilities, all these things, out of your love for Jesus, then, then you've got so much skin in the game that when you come to Mass, it's like, yes, Lord, I, did, I, I lived my life for you, and I'm so grateful I get to receive, it, receive you. But if you have no interest in Christ, you don't care about him, you don't even think about him during the week, no, 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 you're doing your own thing. Come to Mass, of course, receiving Holy Communion is going to mean anything. Because you have no relationship. The relationship is so important. So I thought that was a great point um, to think about it. Um, just like I think a husband and wife. Husband and wife should really sacrifice for each other. <laughs> and they, they, they really live for each other and uh, they have that relationship. They they talk. They communicate. Okay, then they're going to appreciate the conjugal act. They're going to appreciate that that marital act with their spouse much more because they have a relationship with them, and it's not just blah blah blah, blah nothing. So, with that, I kind of end my words today, but then for our short three week series, but. Any uh, questions? Anything in these three weeks? Maybe you were hoping to have answered and we didn't touch on, or you still have questions about? You can always ask me any other time. But anything that comes to mind now? Any comments? So this Maybe. was very easy when you described it. Why is it that so many Catholics then, oh. according to the yeah, the study. Whole, don't believe in the real Catholics. good? So. 
you guys might have some of your other reasons. I'd like to hear from you, but I think one of them, is, I think, is the Protestant Protestantization of our country. We have a very Protestant mindset, and so I think maybe some people just soaked in that idea that it is just a symbol. It's um, a nice sign, and they've soaked that in because we haven't done a good job teaching it at mass or catechism and stuff like that. But also, I think, as I mentioned the first night, it's not only, I think, that people don't know what the church teaches. It's that they know it, but they just don't believe it because we don't act like it. And I stress some of those reasons that first night, uh, our behavior around it, uh, our behavior as far as um, our, the our expectations for what you, how you need to live before you receive it. We haven't stressed that, you know, living a moral life, being in a state of grace. Uh, I think scandalous behaviors of Catholic politicians who don't follow the teachings. I think that lessens people believe. So they, oh, Joe Biden can receive Holy Communion. We can't be that special. You know, it's pro-abortion, um, or you know, other people living publicly scandalous lives. I think that's a good thing. You know, when I was young, we always had communion all the time because it was so holy. We couldn't touch it. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of um, the letting people put it in their hand, you know, we're talking about that you don't want to drop a crumb to fall or anything? Yeah. You think that takes away yeah. from... Have you been around me this long, Beauty? And you haven't. <laughs> of course I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so when was yeah. the dramatic de- decline of people not believing? Like, I don't so know. When, when we were, because when I was younger, I think that's how I started with Song of Tongues. Yeah. But like, was it I don't know if there's any real statistic. I think the statistic maybe you can find is how many people went to Mass. Like, that was a much higher percentage. So that would seem to indicate that they believed more. Because I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say some to say, someone say, yeah, I truly believe that that's Jesus there, and I'm just not going to go on Sundays. <laughs> like, no. I think if people truly believed it, they would be here, right? So I think there is a correlation between Mass attendance and belief. So you could that way, but I don't know of any studies that were done uh, 50 years ago that would you could actually point to in that. You know, I had the, my my whole whole family and kids were all my brothers and sisters were cradle Catholics, yeah. but there are very few of them right now that go to the Catholic Church. Yeah. And my, um, are now practicing Catholics, so one of my sisters um, her, her daughter's children go to, I think it's Okay. Whatever. And she was so proud because he was nine and he was going to receive his first communion. Yeah. And his sister was the one that gave him his first communion. And that was just so painful. It was so painful to hear that. Yeah. And and so uh, and she was so proud and it and how do how yeah. do you evangelize at that point? Yeah. You know? I think you can. You, it's always good to. It's always good to acknowledge there's there's some good or some thing that they think is good there, right? And you build on that, you know. And so, like, yeah, that's great. They're, they, you know, they're showing some sort of desire to grow closer to God, and you can say, well, there's something even greater, you know, at the Catholic Church yeah. than that. Um, Why not scoop for you? <laughs> 
So, but here's the thing. I don't, I'll ask everyone. Could tell me, do you think people actually have walked away from the church because it's too strict or too demanding? I don't know. I think they've walked away because it's not as too judgmental. Okay. Because I think I think yeah. that's that point. The uh-huh. younger people that leave, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think a lot of people walked away because. They thought it was a waste of time. It wasn't demanding enough, I would say. It didn't challenge them enough. I think when you raise the bar and ask more people, they realize, yeah. I mean, I think we see that with religious orders. <laughs> religious orders that are expanding are the ones that are going back to tradition, wearing the full habits, especially with religious sisters. And, you know, really, like, if I'm going to give up a wife and, or a woman, if she's going to give up a husband and kids, like, she wants to be all in in something instead of just you know, wearing a, a skirt and a pin and having it. Like, she wants to give her life totally. And I, and I think the same thing for this is here. I think too many people are able to walk away because all they were told is, yeah, Jesus loves you. It doesn't really matter if you go to Mass. You can go anywhere. Um, we're just going to sing some nice songs here and, you know, not really challenge you in any way, really, to live a holy life. Not really say that you need to go to confession or anything. And We'll just have everyone come up here and distribute Holy Communion. And um, I, I think that's over the... And, you know, Father uh, father Friendly, you know, telling jokes and stuff. Like, I, I think that's why most people went away. That's my take. And I, I'd be... May I'm wrong. But I, I think that's most people, why people walked away. I, I think, too, also, <laughs> just because I, I know a lot of young people and... I think a lot of times, um, how do I say this? Like with kids today, mm-hmm. I think we see it in our society love, right? Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes the love is warped and it's not based on truth, mm-hmm. okay, like God's truth. But overall, kids today are quote unquote, <laughs> I'm using quote unquote because we know. We know what even the truth, truth comes yeah. with loving also. So like, so we know where our truth comes from. Yeah. But quote-unquote, they're loving people, mm-hmm. okay, in their own way of loving. And so I feel, this is what I feel about our Catholic faith, is they feel that, like, when we get so strict on, like, heaven, hell, mortal sin, venial sin, if I do this wrong, I lose my chance of getting to heaven. Like, so, like, I could be good all my life, but if I die and I have one mortal sin on my soul, I'm going to hell. Well, to me, that's what's leaving, making the kids leave the church because 
even if somebody else isn't Catholic and we're knocking somebody who's not Catholic, they're loving people and they want to see the best for all people. And so when we talk like this, it kind of goes outside of God's love and it turns them off. It's like, I don't want to be any part of this because there's no hope. There's, I'd rather go to the Lutheran church where there's lots of hope and I don't have to worry about this. And then that's what I feel is turning the young generation off because their hearts are loving, like even though it's not fully grounded in truth. Well, and they're picking up those cafeteria pieces that they want but, to but that's, but that's, that's But that's, even if that's what they're picking up on, that's the world we're living in. Mm-hmm. So my thought is, we still teach truth, but we do it in relationship of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't we don't knock anybody else because they're not going to like that. You you don't knock anybody else. You just show them the beauty within our Catholic Church and the relationship with Jesus and the full relationship through our sacraments and try to be like Jesus' love to the world and use what we have. We do. We have such a fullness compared to, compared to any other church, but we don't. We don't like knock somebody else down for the extent we don't even have to knock somebody else down because we have the fullness and beauty, and all we're trying to do is invite them in. And I, I think that is a huge thing about the young generation going away. Well, I think, but but your your example of one mortal sin and going to hell, like that's not the truth. <laughs> but but as a lot as, of times that presents. I know, but. But that that's a failure of the church then right. to say what's what's tr- what's and true. I then. grew up with that. I mean, I grew up. That's did anybody else? <laughs> okay, the point is, the point is, whenever as long as you're as long as you're repentant, as long as you're repentant, you're. But I you're mean, fine. I mean, but they're thinking like because even Michael's roommate, he was Catholic. He went to Catholic school. Michael just told me this. Like I have kids, <laughs> and his roommate said. He went to Catholic school. He is never going to be a Catholic again. And that was the sole reason. He said, I go to church every weekend, miss one mass, get in the car accident, I'm done. But that's not true. But that's what yeah. it was I know, so you got to clarify it. it. Yeah. I, I think sometimes they make things up like that. Yeah. yeah. But I was to justify taught, yeah. Yeah. Daughter, I was taught that, and I thought that forever <laughs> until I... But you, you did the hard work to find out the truth no, eventually. It was, it was And, and it was, like, honestly, like, in it, it's the fear part, I think. I'm just being honest with you. What I hear from kids, and I'm, I'm not doing this tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I think the fear part is what keeps the kids away. Mm. And I just feel God is so good. And we have such fullness. Like, we need to just teach them that. We need to just teach them out of God's love our beauty of our Catholic Church. And that's my philosophy, but... You think sometimes that they think it's just, like (laughs) like you said, it's too hard. It's too hard. And so so it's easier to believe that God died for our sins. He he died on the cross, he took away all our sins, and we're going to heaven. So it doesn't matter. So they don't have to... No, so they don't have to do the hard stuff. But that's not... (laughs) They've already been saved. My philosophy is... Once you learn that God died for you and me, all of us, once we learn that and, it, and God comes to the lowest of our low, 
that love of God is going to make you grow. Instead of the fear, it makes you want to love him back. And so the hard stuff doesn't even become hard anymore. It becomes just your life. And like to teach this to kids, it's, that's such a huge thing. I mean, it's huge to teach this to kids. Instead of the fear, it has to be done out of God's love. And that's, you think of what we were talking about. You know, he'd go and say, follow me. I mean, you look at the hard places these people were in. They were at the lowest of their low, most of them. And Jesus just comes in, shows his love, follow me, grace. They don't want to turn back because now they know what it's truly about. Mm -hmm. And that's why they didn't leave when he said the hard things because they truly trusted him. Not everyone, most of them. No, but his apostles who were by his side constantly. And it's kind of that reflects kind of even Holy Communion. <laughs> the more he receives, mm -hmm. the more you trust and the mm -hmm. more you want to follow. And it's kind of all not symbolic, it may not be mm -hmm. received, but symbolic, the biblical story yeah. of everything. Mm -hmm. But, okay. Father, I, I would like yeah, to share because I talked with somebody that she said that, you know, Priscilla, I was a Catholic. Oh, okay, so what is it that you are not? You know what? Because Catholic is so hard to follow. Mm -hmm. It's because uh, I am not married. I have five children. And I am doing all of this. And, uh -huh. and I know Catholics do not allow it. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's why I turned back to other religions mm -hmm. because I can't do this. So, yeah. the pull of this earthly satisfaction yeah. is more than the heavenly. Yeah. So, they, these young people are really in a crossroads of their life. Mm -hmm. I, all of us know that. It's so, sometimes it's hard, it's a challenge, so it goes back to family. Yeah. On how what we value, on yep. what we teach. So uh, the world is how do you call it? We sometimes we consider it a giant and a dwarf. Yeah. But the faith in God is giant. Mm -hmm. But our kids, our new generation, they not see that. Yeah, yeah that's why I agree, Priscilla, and that's why. Uh, that's why we're trying to build a culture. When you're in a culture, it's easier to do difficult things. If you're the only one, it's hard to do difficult things, you know. And I think that's that's a big, big part of it. That's why, Father, I really appreciate what you're doing. Like our youth will be exposed to this kind of things. So mm -hmm. because we are living in this kind of world that the other is so powerful. Yeah. So the church should be more attractive. Yeah. Thank you. Put David? Yeah. I'd just like to make a comment that when I look around in church, a lot of times I see just a young person by themselves, and I'll see them, you know, more than once. And that just kind of impresses me. You know, they're not with their parents. They're not with yeah. their family. They're just there, you know. So I don't think it's all doomed. And, and I think it's good to, if you see them, if you can, after Mass, say, hey, introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm glad you're here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it up. But I've noticed that a lot. Yeah.
And it's so great to hear all the crying babies and the kids making the <laughs> You know, as an older person, I thought it was I always people always about the kids crying. Well, back in the day, 